Movie Date is supported by the Movie Music Stream at yourclassical.org. Soundtracks for every moment of the day and features that complement your listening experience. Movies at yourclassical.org. Kristen, we have a lot of movies this week that are looking back to the past. We're looking back at 2011, 1966, and 1914. Wow. Which, which of these years, if you, had, if you had to choose, which of these years would you go back to? Oh, man. Not 1914. Everyone's about to die. Doesn't sound that great, does it? The Great War. They didn't use the word great correctly in that one. (laughs) It was not great. Not great. Great meaning large. Oh, terrible. I don't want to be there. Not so good. Um, Hold on. What are our other choices? What about 1966? It's the cusp of the hippie revolution. Drugs are all over the place. You can sleep around for the first time if you'd like. You as a woman. Yeah. That's great. And the clothes are so cute. The clothes are awesome. Some of the cool. music's fantastic. Best there's a year lot of for good, rock and roll, right? There's a lot of good stuff going on right there. Yeah, yeah. How about, how sure. about 2011, though? Mm, 2011? Hold on. Oh, God. Do you mean 2004? <laughs> <laughs> Do you mean Axe body spray at its height? Do you mean... Is that, is that right? Uh, well, what we're talking about, of course, is Entourage, which... <laughs> Which Entourage went off the air in 2011. We're also talking about uh, Love and Mercy, a biopic on Brian Wilson that looks at uh, 1966 and the making of Pet Sounds, and then Testament of Youth, which goes all the way back to 1914 and the beginning of the Great War. So there are your three choices. You don't but, sound, you don't, no, you don't sound have, too stoked on any of them. No, I was going to say there's there's this other bright spot, though. Yes, we're yes. Also, we're also going to be talking about Spy, which is the present or possibly the future. Aha. Yes, and we're actually talking with a real spy. An actual former CIA undercover agent. Yes, she was with the CIA for about 10 years, and she did everything from bomb sites in the Middle East to fancy swanky cocktail parties in, you know, European capitals, all that fancy stuff. So I'm, I'm going to pull out my best interrogation techniques for her. <laughs> and I just want to ask her if any of those devices actually exist. <laughs> you know we'll those see. Devices. <laughs> yes. Do they actually have contact lenses that work as cameras? I hope so. I oh hope my God, so that'd too. be so great. I hope so. Oh, I'll get it to spill. <laughs> I will, Kristen. I will. All right, we're going to talk about all that and more. But first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture producer for The Takeaway. And this is Movie Day. I guess I just wasn't made for the And let's start off with Entourage, the film version of the HBO hit that went off the air finally in 2011, long time ago, no? Yeah, that's why when you were doing the time travel thing, I didn't realize it ran all the way to 2011. That show started in 2004. Well, by then, everyone had kind of forgotten forgotten about about the show. Uh, And so here we are, four years later, with the film version. Uh, Everyone is back. Adrian Grenier is Vincent Chase, the hot, rising young movie star, and Kevin Dillon as Johnny is... His uh, half-brother, who's also trying to be an actor. Sort of half-talented as well. (laughs) Uh, Jerry Ferrara as Turtle, their mascot, and uh, Kevin Connolly as Eric, their manager. Uh, Plus, of course, Jeremy Piven as Ari Gold. This movie basically picks up where the show left off. It was directed and written by Doug Ellen, the show's creator. Um, And everyone, except maybe for Johnny, has achieved great success. And we find them when uh, Vincent Chase is trying to direct his next film. Here's a clip. You're upset. Upset? He means angry. This is the third time that you've come to me for more money. 
What did I tell you when I gave you $100 million? What did we tell you? You agreed to not go over. We told you it wasn't enough. But you agreed to not go over. Because you said I couldn't direct unless we agreed. It's like when a girl asks if you want to bang her hot sister. Of course you say no. Neither of you really believes you mean it, though. So you get the gist. We have the guys, you know, all of them working as a team because Vinny never does anything alone. He needs his his little entourage. That's right. His, his homeboys from Queens. Right. To be there as part of everything. And they're always getting their horns locked with Ari Gold. And that's pretty much what the TV show was for the entire run of it, as far as I know. I only watch part of the first season when it was on air. So I've seen it sporadically, and it, it seemed to me that, um, you know, it was giving us uh, a glimpse into what we kind of feared but also hoped that Hollywood was. Yeah, right? especially if you're just an ordinary Joe. You're not necessarily the best-looking guy on your block. You're not rich. Your friends all work at the mall. Right. But, you know... But I don't maybe. have to work at Sparrow forever. Right. Maybe I can end up in a situation with <laughs> right. girls with hair extension and giant fake boobs. If I go to the, if I go to Hollywood and I get to the movie industry, suddenly the gates are open. It's all the, it's all before me. The it's red all carpet drugs has rolled and girls out. Girls and fame and exactly. the whole thing. Yes, and maybe I have to fight a little bit with my studio heads, but I'm going to make it happen. But that's glamorous too, right? Because Hollywood is a hard-hitting industry <laughs> full of sharks and you got to have sharp elbows in Hollywood. you gotta, you got to be able to stand up to Ari Gold. Um, can, and we the, you also, know, can we also point out who else you have to stand up to in this one? Who? We also have to stand up to the film funders. That's right. The two film funders. We forgot about them. Billy Bob Thornton and, of all people, Haley Joel Osment. They're playing... like these cowboy yokels yeah. who are like multi-millionaires who just throw money at Hollywood whenever they want to have a project on the side. Right, a Texas millionaire and his son uh, who wind up uh, mucking up Vincent Chase's film with their (laughs) stupid ideas. Um, So, Kristen, what did you think of this film? Well, you know what you're saying about what you hope for but also what you fear is going to happen in Hollywood? Right. You know, I feel like that's not something that needed to last for, what was it, eight years on HBO? (laughs) Yeah. Much less get a feature film because... As I alluded to at the beginning of this podcast, it is like being trapped in an Axe body spray commercial. Yes, it is. It really is. It's like everything horrible that you just roll your eyes at, that you just think it might be funny in a 30-second Axe commercial. Right. You don't want to watch for two and a half hours on the big screen. And you're objecting to what exactly? The women? You know, listen to in that clip we just played about the way... (laughs) It's like when you look at a girl and she's got a hot sister and you want to bang her and you say right. you're not going to bang her. It's like, oh, give me $100 million more million. We only said we wanted $100 million because we really wanted $200 million, but we knew you wouldn't give us $200 million. Like all of this stuff is so horrible. Right. It's reprehensible. It's just greed. It's money. All the women are just accessories. The women never get to be anything other than just objects to screw around with and to see topless. True. From the very first scene, they're on a boat in Ibiza. Yeah, and- a yacht. And and all the girls just are like I don't have any top on. Yeah, here I am. Look at my butt. Right. It's yeah. It. it I. I was a little surprised uh, at the way this movie used women. Uh, not so much in the story, which is you know, frankly par for the course. Uh, oh my gosh, here's a hot blonde who wants to you know take me into the bedroom. Whatever. I'm you know that's you expect that from Entourage, but um, you know how a lot of directors will 
look at their frame and, and think, oh, this frame looks a little empty, so let's fill that up with a bookcase or something. And <laughs> Doug Allen just, in literally every shot, seems like, yeah, this frame looks a little empty. Let's put a lot of topless women in the background. <laughs> it's like, wow, you act, you literally have reduced the women to props. They're actually background scenery. And they're like wallpaper. And they're background scenery actually having sex with each other just so yes. that you can like – because it's not good enough that they're all just standing around topless for no good reason in your house. I know, I know. Yeah. Uh, and and that's really hard to watch. And, you know, like I said, I watched a few episodes the first season because it was getting such great buzz. But I never made it past a few episodes for these same reasons because I felt that maybe there was supposed to be a joke here. Maybe it was supposed to be tongue-in-cheek. Maybe it was supposed to be a mix between wish fulfillment and look at what a joke this whole place is. Exactly. But I didn't get any sense of the joke in this movie. Well, I think one of the problems to me is that this movie does exist in the past. It does still exist sort of in 2011. That wasn't that long ago, but when you think about it, a great deal has changed since then. And I, I feel like, first of all, Women in Hollywood have really made some great strides. I mean, women are kind of the hot new thing right now. You know, female-fronted movies, uh, female directors. I'm not saying like, oh, everything's great in Hollywood and we've got gender equality and it's the problem has been solved. But women are really on the rise. And I feel like, you know, I mean, look at Pitch Perfect 2, which just slapped totally. down Mad Max. Oh, yeah, blew it out of the I water. Think, I, think there's a, I think that's a really telling thing about, about um, movies for and by women and this <laughs> entourage has no idea that that has happened um, they also don't know that women actually have brains and they think they never knew that <laughs> <laughs> they never knew that and so and so i wasn't expecting that but yes you're right and, but i also feel like everything else about it is dated too i kind of i kind of feel like well why is the why are the was Vincent Chase going to a Texas millionaire to fund his film? The funding is coming from overseas. It's the overseas markets that are that are hot now. No one no, is. No, but if they did the overseas market, they'd also have to maybe have some diversity in their film. Well, right, and then of course they might fall into some racist Chinese stereotypes. Yes, but, yes. Uh, and you know, but and also the the you know the the studio executives are yelling at each other about money and profits and box office, but no one's worried about how like television and the internet and Netflix are just eating their lunch you know no no one's no one's concerned about how the the vast marvel universe is is subsuming the entire movie industry entourage the series was supposed to be our inside look into hollywood and it doesn't feel like that anymore it feels like yesterday's hollywood to me and it doesn't have any imagination to it let alone the completely lame practically non-existent story i feel the story is so repetitive also i feel that yeah. that scene of we're fighting with Ari about money, we need to reshoot. That's the same conversation that you hear repeatedly throughout the movie. So they don't even up the ante no. or change the story. It's like, oh my God, didn't we just see this scene 10 minutes ago? It's a television show. It's a half hour television <laughs> episode stretched into a feature film. And I don't feel like Doug Ellen has the movie, the mind of a movie maker to raise the stakes, to widen out the scope, to br broaden the story and give it that kind of impact. He's still concerned with pushing his characters forward a little bit incrementally. If you loved Entourage and you just thought it was the funniest damn thing you've ever seen, you might be interested in going back and seeing this. Um, I think if you're not a fan, there's just nothing in Entourage for you. And I will also say, you know, the executive producer is Mark Wahlberg, and Entourage is based loosely on his early life in Hollywood. Um, you know, 
a lot of the stuff that's surfacing, that's surfacing about Mark Wahlberg these days is kind of not sitting well with me either. Yeah. Um, you know, the stuff about his past, uh, the violence, uh, his attempts. The attempt, racism. The, the racism, the attempts to kind of sweep it all under the rug. Um, I, I it, it doesn't make me look any more kindly on these hideous, shallow, self-obsessed, horrible people that were in Entourage <laughs> in the first place who were kind of supposed to be sat- sat- satirical but kind of likable. Now I just I just feel like they all seem kind of despicable and uninteresting. And it doesn't make me think like, yay, Hollywood, wouldn't it be fascinating? It just seems like, oh, God, I'm so glad I left L.A. <laughs> you know, so I, so I you thought, think this is a horrible date. I thought Entourage was actually a, a very bad date. I expected it to be at least a passable date, like maybe the first Sex in the City, which was kind of tolerable. Oh, I like the first Sex in yeah, the City the, movie. It was yeah. fine. Um, I thought Entourage was just a, a terrible date. It you? was absolutely horrible. I thought Entourage was horrible for everybody. But I can't imagine any woman's going to be able to watch this without just hurling everywhere. And, I agree. And, and frankly, most men who have brains that I know are, are going to feel the same way. Let's hope so. All right. Let's turn our attentions to uh, skipping 1914. back. Yeah, we're skipping back and forth in time here <laughs> just a little bit. 1914, that's the setting for a movie called Testament of Youth, which is based on the memoir of Vera Britton, an extremely popular memoir that was published after the war. Vera Britton became um, a very vocal pacifist uh, in the years after uh, the First World War. Uh, she's played by Alicia Vikander, um, and she is... A fairly normal girl for her time in England. Um, she does want to go to Oxford, which was a little unusual at the time. Um, so she embarks on this really exciting college career, and then war breaks out and derails kind of everything. And, um, you know, her boyfriend goes off to war, her brother goes off to war, her one of her best male friends goes off to war, and she herself winds up going overseas to work as a nurse to contribute to the war effort. Here's a clip. Hello. You're studying. What of it? Nothing. I... Look, I've done the Oxford entrance exams. It's all about technique. I could help you once you've learnt it. You'll sail through, I'm sure. Like a Masonic secret. Passed from teacher to boy. Actually, my teachers weren't that good. I worked it out for myself. And so will I. I think this is... uh... A, a very good movie. It's really well acted. It has that very classical uh, feel to it. Uh, the director, James Kent, uh, gives it this very nice uh, uh, kind of uh, – it, it's very, it's very rich-looking, uh, nicely done film. Um, I think it probably worked a little better at a me- as a memoir, a little more uh, effective as a memoir. Mm. What, it's, what it's really trying to get at is – this whole idea that seems kind of strange and kind of insane to us now about this war that nobody understood in any way. I mean, even today, ask someone to explain World War One to you. It's so just it's, like Franz Ferdinand and someone gets shot and it's just everyone's baffling. mad. And and then all of a sudden the entire world rushes to war. And it really was a rush no to sense. war. It, it was makes no sense. Yeah. I, I, I've been reading the John Savage book Teenage. I just finished it a while back. And he oh, talks yeah. a lot about about the effect of the World War on the younger generation and how in World War One, it was this kind of it was this kind of weird, crazed herd mentality of this whole generation that was kind of thirsty for excitement and glory and blood and war. And there's this very odd scene where um, Vera Britton 
begs her father to allow her brother to go to the front. And indeed, the father does. The father gives in and lets his son go to war. And it's it's the kind of scene that you really can't imagine playing out in any American living room today. Oh, no. And um, Not any time in the last 40 years. Exactly. No time. Exactly. And so as the film unfolds, and uh, no spoilers, but, you know, Vera Britton winds up losing some very important people in the war— um, she comes to this realization that, you know, my God, what have we done? Uh, what have we done and what's been done to us? And that has some real power to it. Um, I think it's I think Testament of Youth is a, a, a good date. It's got some really powerful scenes, some great acting. Kit Harrington is in it. It's a little underwhelming in its way, but I still thought it was uh, I would still recommend it as a good date. Go You'll ahead. probably enjoy it. Well, I'll have to check that out then. Let's move on to the 1960s, shall we? Yes. To Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson biopic. Brian Wilson, who was the composer mastermind behind the Beach Boys, who, you know, a lot of us know for their happy beach songs, and they're really into surfing, and they yep. wear shorts, and they like California girls, all that stuff. But there was this turning point for the group, which came with Pet Sounds, a very experimental unbelievable album that had everything from theremins on it to dogs barking to bobby pins on a keyboard and just amazing different things and it was a very inventive album and the movie opens with this era and then it goes all the way up to in flashback and flash forward to the 1980s when brian wilson is coming out of a deep deep depression where he's been in bed for three years and his whole life has fallen apart and he's meeting Miranda Ledbetter, who becomes his second wife. Here is a clip. Melinda! Are you there? <laughs> Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm great. You look really great. Thank you. I forgot your apartment number. Ah, uh, well, it's a good thing the loudspeaker worked. Yeah. Hey, Melinda. Hi. You look great. And that's Paul Giamatti coming in there at the end. He plays Dr. Eugene Landy, who was a uh, sort of Los Angeles Hollywood celebrity self-help guru who had treated other celebrities at the time and got his hooks into Brian Wilson at just the right time when Brian Wilson was, you know, at the depths of his life and controlled and exploited Brian Wilson for many, many years afterwards and tried to come between Brian and Miranda Ledbetter. So, Kristen, uh, I know you're a Beach Boys fan. I'm a Beach Boys fan. Um, What did you think of this film? Well, first of all, I want to point out one of the things that appealed to us about this, because when we were looking forward to the summer and what movies we were most excited about, um, one of the reasons why you were excited about this, Rafer, was because there were going to be two actors playing Brian Wilson, Paul Dano and John Cusack. And so we see Paul Dano during the younger years, and I was really excited to see that. I like Paul Dano. Yeah. And then um, John Cusack in the present, and uh, Miranda Ledbetter is played by Elizabeth Banks. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, this is a really interesting cast. Yes. So I went in there thinking the cast is interesting. I love that the movie is going to open with Pet Sounds, which is one of my favorite albums of all time. Yes. And so there was a lot that appealed to me about this, but I think that something you and I have talked about at length over the years, Rafer, is a lot of the problems with biopics. They don't know how much to include. They don't know when to rein it in. They don't know how much time to cover. Yes. And I think this movie was trying to fight those problems by just 
being in two moments, really. Right. The Pet Sounds era and the I'm meeting Miranda Ledbetter era. Right. And they tried to do that. And yet, despite that, it still felt kind of unwieldy to me. And a much bigger problem, though, is I felt that there was a weird lack of chemistry between Elizabeth Banks and John Cusack. And I think you can kind of hear it in that clip that things are disconnected, but not in an interesting, good way, but just in a are you guys in the same room? What's going on here? Right. And Miranda Ledbetter is supposed to be this stranger who comes into his life. She's working at a Cadillac uh, sales floor, and she's a former model, and they just meet each other, and she gets to know him, and she sees how weird it is. She, you know, she, she's in shock that he can't go anywhere without his doctor with him. Right. Eugene's always with him on their dates. He's always there, and she tries to save him, but... I couldn't help but wonder why she was even interested in him in the first place because you get a sense from that clip how awkward he is. He doesn't actually have anything in the least but appealing for her. And it was a relationship I had a hard time just getting my brain around. And yeah. I think think Paul Dano is actually pretty good as the young... Brian Wilson. You can tell he, oh, yeah. he put on a little weight for the role because Brian Wilson was kind of a, a, a round-faced, kind of chubby uh, kid. Um, the thing is, uh, Brian Wilson was also, he just has a somewhat stocky, stocky-ish kind of heavy build. Mm-hmm. And that's not John Cusack. John Cusack is a really slender guy. As, he's, as John Cusack has gotten older, he's got a little, he's gotten even more gaunt, I think, in the face. So Cusack doesn't look like Brian Wilson in the slightest, in absolutely any way. And I feel like even though he captures um, Brian Wilson's stilted speech and his kind of funny mannerisms, and and if you've seen documentaries and things on Brian Wilson, he is a little odd. You know, he does he does, he has a certain affect that is a little tough to um, follow. But what Brian Wilson also has is this really sweet childlike spirit to him, even today, that you can see through all his problems. And Cusack doesn't get that. No, there's no sweetness there. There's no magic to him. There's no, no bright-eyed, no. wow. He just seems like a wreck. Yes, just like a mess. And, like, what could he possibly give Miranda Ledbetter? It feels like he's giving her nothing. Exactly. He's and running away from her. He's treating her horribly. He's ignoring her. Right. And I think the—I think—so I think that is a problem. You're right. Um— I think the other main problem to me, even though I love all the 1965-66 scenes where they're making pet sounds and doing all these crazy oh, things in the studio. Oh, that was one of my favorite parts was seeing the process of it. All that stuff is great. And I think um, uh, the director, Bill Polad, does a really good job of bringing actors in at the right time to kind of add context. I love Jake Abel, the great Jake Abel, who plays uh, Mike Love, the vocalist. Um, Mike Love is the naysayer. Mike Love is the guy who's saying, I, where's the hit? we got to get back to our old Why stuff. Why is this so depressing? Why even the happy songs are sad. <laughs> um, and that helps. That helps kind of, kind of set the mood and add a little context to those studio session scenes. Those are good. I do feel that the movie basically has two points that it hammers home over and over, which are Brian Wilson was a genius. Brian Wilson was insane. And I feel like it just kind of gives you the mad genius stuff over and over and over. Actors actors walk into the scene to tell Brian Wilson what a mad genius he is. Uh, we hear his auditory hallucinations, which he actually does suffer from. We hear his, you know, his his madness. We hear his troubles a lot. A lot. I think it gets really repetitive. I think it's possible that you know this movie was made with the full cooperation of of Wilson and Ledbetter, and. 
maybe that might be a problem. I think the director seems a little overawed by Brian Wilson and a little too eager to hold him up as, you know, one of the big, great rock icons. I don't really need that. I know that. I want to get to know more about the story and the man. Um, And this movie doesn't quite do that for me. So me, I thought Love and Mercy was... An okay date, mostly because I'm a classic rock fan. Um, mm. Otherwise, I, I'm not so great. I'm sorry, Rafer. I have to disagree with you. I don't think Love and Mercy is an okay date. Oh. I think it's. I think it's messy. I think that it lacked real heart. It lacked like coherence. Oh, you can't even give it a pass, Kristen. I can't give it a pass. Wow. I would rather just go home and listen to Pet Sounds on repeat for the rest of the day. All right, you've got a a slightly split decision on Love and Mercy. Well, stay with us, because when we come back, we're going to be talking with J.C. Carlson. She's a real spy, and she's going to talk with us about the movie Spy, starring Melissa McCarthy. We'll have that, plus a little mystery date action. Oh, ho. <laughs> and, of course, as always, trivia. Movie Date is supported by the Movie Music Stream at YourClassical.org, a new site for expertly curated streams, unique programs, and relevant features to promote calm and focus. Click to discover a soundtrack for every moment of your day, whether it's filled with adventure, romance, intrigue, or quiet contemplation. Find a steady stream for your epic scenes with movies at YourClassical.org. She's somehow close now. Softly smile, I know she must be kind. I'm Rafer Guzman. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. And this is Movie Date. And we want to remind you to go to our Movie Date Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast, because we like to hear from you. We like you to see all of our updates. We're always putting new trailers on there. And we have a picture of a very strange candy bar that one of our fans sent us. And we want you to maybe look at this unusual candy bar it's a themed candy bar from her home state. <laughs> it's an Idaho candy bar. So, Interesting. Yes. You'll you'll go to our Facebook.com slash movie date podcast page. Look at that candy bar. Maybe send us pictures of your own regional candy bars and what you eat when you're at the movies. This is one of those odd treats that she eats when she's at the movies. So she sent us one. So. I want one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Rafer, it's time that we talk with our expert of the day. We have J.C. Carlson here with us. J.C. is a former CIA agent, and she worked in the field for almost 10 years. And she's joining us from out in the world. She happens to be down in South America right now. You can't disclose that, (laughs) Kristen. (laughs) J.C., thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So, J.C., if we understand correctly, you were a covert operative for about 10 years with the CIA. Can you explain what that means? Uh, yeah, that's we're the people who go out and collect the information. We're the ones who are essentially trying to recruit spies and and get the, the secret information from other governments in order to provide it to our own. Wow. And um, in the movie Spy, starring Melissa McCarthy, she's out there and she's supposed to be gathering information, but she also is fully equipped to do more if need be. For example, she has this rape whistle that if she blows, a dart comes out and hits somebody. And she's got this contact lens that feeds information back to her 
people at the home base. And then she also has weapons that are all hidden in other things. I was given specific instructions by Elaine to tailor these gadgets to you. <gasps> these are not yours. Oh. This antifungal spray can freeze and disable any security system. Wow, that is quite an image to be carrying all over Europe. It's also a pepper spray. Why not just make it look like pepper spray? It's a, it's a pretty good idea. All right, well, next time. Well, I can, I can wait if you want to print up a new label. No, I'd have to turn the printer on again. I don't really want to. Are you provided with a full kit like that before you go out in the field? Decidedly not. Uh, we oh. do training and and uh, occasional firearms, but the fact of the matter is, the day to day work of a CIA officer relies a lot more on psychology than it does on technology. So there are very few gadgets involved. It's disappointingly to most uh, movie watchers, it's it's a lot of <laughs> sitting in quiet meetings and writing lots of reports. There is some of that in Spy. Um, <laughs> now I'm 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 doubting the. Uh, the makers of Spy felt that it was necessary to uh, contact the CIA before they made this film. But I, I know that when filmmakers are making a movie about, say, the military, you know, the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, uh, those arms of the of the military will act as consultants of some kind to help the filmmakers get the details right and avoid any obvious errors. But does the CIA ever do that? Do they ever work with filmmakers like that? In general, no. But the funny thing is, is when I when I first decided to leave the agency and start writing, I of course started with a spy thriller because you know what else? Of course. And and I admit that I was a bit arrogant because I thought that I had a real leg up on all the other writers because I had authenticity and I knew the real deal. So I sat down and I wrote these long scenes that only an insider could have written and patting myself on the back the whole time, of course, for all my authenticity. <laughs> but then those were the first scenes that my editor had me cut because, quite honestly, they were kind of boring. So <laughs> that, that was an interesting lesson for me to learn as a writer that audiences don't really want full authenticity. They're, they're coming to be entertained. So, you know, spy movies and spy thrillers and, and novels are – you know, capitalize on hyperbole and inaccuracies that used to drive me crazy. But now, now as a writer, I can very much appreciate because I like to be entertained too. <laughs> uh, whenever I see a, a journalist in the movies, um, my first reaction is, oh, he, you know, here we go. The, the journalist is either going to be a liar or a fabricator, or he's going to be some kind of courageous crusading hero who takes down an entire drug ring an entire drug ring but he's 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 never like an actual realistic character that I could identify as a journalist when you go see a movie what are your feelings when you see that CIA agent come on screen I actually very rarely watch spy movies just because of that because the hyperbole and the inaccuracies drive me crazy uh, this one's different because it's coming at that hyperbole with a great sense of humor, it seems. So, plus, I think Melissa McCarthy is absolutely hilarious. But besides that, my impression is that this this movie isn't supposed to be accurate. It's I actually appreciate it because it's poking fun at the, the common and highly inaccurate, obviously, Hollywood depiction of CIA officers. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it's doing. And and one of the things I also really appreciate this about this movie is it's not making Melissa McCarthy the butt of the joke, which I think in Hollywood they'd frequently try to make uh, a woman of a certain age who has some extra weight on her. They'd try to make her the butt of a joke, whereas, you know, she gets to actually be very fierce. She fights. She does those psychological tricks you're talking about, JC. And I, I just love that. And I also thought 
who better to be a spy than somebody who looks ordinary like, you know, Melissa McCarthy? She's beautiful, but she doesn't look like, you know, walking into a room the same way that a model Angelina like— Angelina Jolie. Yeah, or, <laughs> yeah, like Angelina Jolie walking into a room. She actually looks like she might be able to blend in. In your experience, were most of the spies actually people who looked more like regular folks like Melissa McCarthy, or do they look like Angelina Jolie? They definitely are your your full range of average, ordinary people. Um, the reality is that officers shouldn't stand out. They need to blend into the background, and they need to be able to operate without calling attention to themselves. You know, if, if every time a CI officer walks into the room, she looks like Angelina Jolie and turns everyone's head, she can't do her job. She can't do anything <laughs> without notice, and that would kind of defeat the purpose. JC, one last question here. Sure. So... In the movie Spy, we do see some workplace romance happening in the film. Is the CIA a place where workplace romance happens? It it strikes me in real life as kind of a square place, but in the movie, you know, everything's kind of amped up. It does happen, and largely it's because... You know, you're you're traveling a lot. You can't talk about your job uh, with with most of your social circles. So people naturally fall into uh, relationships with the people who understand their lifestyle and 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 actually can have fuller conversations about the matters that uh, you wouldn't be able to to disclose outside of the relation outside of the agency. So yeah, it does happen. Hmm. What did, what did you tell people you were when you were at the CAA? Can't tell you that. Not even that. (laughs) J.C. Carlson, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. That was J.C. Carlson, former CIA undercover agent, author of the book Work Like a Spy, talking with us about the Melissa McCarthy comedy Spy. All right, Rafer. It's time that we do something a little mysterious. Oh, let's get into it. Hi. Oh, hi. Have we met before? Not that I remember, and I'd remember. I know so very little about you. I know very little about you. I find you very attractive. Do you find me attractive? All right, Rafer, we have a very um, unusual mystery date this week, but I'm sure it's been seen by a lot of our listeners on their Hulu cues because Hulu has been really pushing this movie. Yes. Yes. I Every time I go onto Hulu lately, it's like, watch this, watch this, watch this, and the thing that it wants us to watch is Sexual Intelligence, hosted by Kim Cattrall. <laughs> yes, a documentary from 2005. Um, and it's, uh, well, Kristen, do you want to explain sort of what this documentary is, uh, what subject this documentary is tackling? Yeah, so this was an HBO documentary, and it came out in 2005, as you just said, which was the year after Sex and the City went off the air. And HBO already had a relationship, obviously, with Kim Cattrall. And, yes. Um, and you might recall that on Sex and the City and in the Sex and the City movies, Kim Cattrall played Samantha, who was kind of a PR agent who was very sexy and yes. had a lot of sex and all kinds of sex, you know. A very large libido. Very large libido. And she wasn't afraid to try anything new and bad. And she was really open to talking about everything with regard to sex. And in this documentary, Sexual Intelligence, she is kind of taking that same character and bringing it to the public in a more informative sort of way because she wants to talk with us about sex in a sex positive way. Everything from our genitals to what makes us connect with each other to communication and what is sexy and why. Here is a clip. Let's talk about sex. It's a big subject where nature and culture collide. Can we navigate the mysteries of sex? 
We talk about being swept away, possessed, overtaken, all of which acknowledge the force of desire, but never is logic. Can we develop a kind of sexual intelligence? One that deepens our pleasure and gives us a greater awareness of ourselves. One of the things that makes sexual desire so puzzling is that men and women tend to experience it differently. Well, Kristen, what, um, what did you think about the message of this movie? Well, let's just say, first of all, the message comes not just from Kim Cattrall, but we have some talking heads. Yeah, We authors. have some authors. We have some experts. We have some regular people who just share their own stories of mm-hmm. dating and sex and relationships and so on. So we get a lot of talking heads. Um, but it is mostly Kim Cattrall who is yes, our it is. host and narrator throughout this. And I think the message is supposed to be sex positivity. And I really love sex positivity. I don't think there should be shame around sex. I think people should be able to talk openly about all the different aspects of what sex is. And she's not just talking sexual function here. As a matter of fact, she's talking very little about function and reproduction and so on. She's talking about pleasure and she's talking about uh, connection and love and the things that make us feel happy when we're having sex with ourselves or with other people. I love that tone. I like the tone of that. And she brings a sense of humor to it, which isn't always very funny. It's <laughs> some, some, some of the jokes are kind of clunkers. You said it. <laughs> but I do like the sex positivity uh, message here. And I do like the let's talk about this sort of conversation. And the sex is not something new to us. It goes back in history, many hundreds of thousands of years. And we can see it in art. We can see it in sculpture. Don't feel ashamed. It's been around forever. Let's talk about this. And I like that aspect of it. But, Rafer, you're looking at me like you don't understand what I'm talking about. (laughs) I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you with amazement that you could find even one positive (laughs) thing to say about this thing. (laughs) I'm just just stunned that you were able to give it any credence whatsoever. From the – literally from the opening seconds of sexual intelligence, I knew – this was just a complete dog. It's so what? clear. It's <laughs> so clear. It's so clear why nobody out there in America has ever heard of this thing. A lot of people have heard of this. There was an accompanying coffee table book. Hulu has heard of it. it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean, okay. This was on this... HBO. This isn't something that was on, like, VHF tapes being circulated on the underground. This was, you know. It, this, this, this is uh, – this seemed to me to be, like – I'm going to quote my wife who came in while I was watching this, <laughs> sat with me for about three minutes and left saying, this seems like a stupid person's idea of a documentary. And I have to agree. It's just Kim Cattrall. They shoot her in different locations in front of different things. That... Usually wearing a trench coat, but sometimes a gold swimsuit. Right. What The trench coat. I, I didn't quite get that. And, you know, and saying things that really amount that really amount to. The, just the absolute most obvious, obvious statements a person could make about sex. You know, men have names for their penises. The penis represents power, but the the vagina is more is more beautiful and mysterious. Have you heard of this artist, Georgia O'Keeffe? Yeah, yes, I've heard of Georgia O'Keeffe. I, I you know, I've been told that penises represent power before. I've read that somewhere. Are you going to tell me next that people have been having sex for thousands of years? Because I'm pretty sure I know that too. Well, Rayford, this is. This is a good point. Okay. Anybody our age, we're not, you know, little kids. We know most of this stuff. But while watching it, what I was thinking is, 
This would be great for junior high or high school kids. No. Oh my, Yes. No. Because no. here's why. Because it's actually focusing on the aspects of sex that you're not learning in sex ed class. It's focusing on pleasure. It's focusing on women have more than a vagina. There's a lot more going on down there, guys. Okay. Okay. I, I mean, I, I guess from that standpoint, I, I sort of see what you're saying. But I mean, do you really want to show this movie with all its like double entendre jokes about the word come to like... <laughs> To a junior high school people. When I when I hear those kind of jokes, I just kind of think, how dumb do you think I am? What like what kind of sniggering lowbrow low IQ humor is this that you're gonna make a cum joke to me in a sex documentary? You you got that's, to be kidding that's me. That's why I think it's great for like junior high kids or oh, early high Lord. school. Because that might work for them. And I know what you're saying. You're however old you are, Rafer. I'm not gonna, old. I'm not going to say how old you are. You're you're a forty something person. Yeah. This yeah, emphasis you, on the something. You you are about thirty something years too old for this. But I'm thinking if you are thirteen, this could actually be a good introduction to sex positivity. I I think the I think the I think the saucy, <laughs> creepy tone of this whole thing is not anything. I I would. Never show this to my kids. My <laughs> God, I'd be, I'd, I'd, I would never, ever, ever. The only good thing I can say about sexual intelligence is that it is almost worth your time to watch the first few seconds of this film so that you can see Kim Cattrall in a fake cloud with a taxidermied swan. <laughs> that was the one moment where I thought, all right, I'm going to make a little star next to that in my notepad because that's worth something. But everything else, I just thought this is this is one of the most grisly, amateurish vanity projects I have ever seen. I thought sexual intelligence was like the opposite of a date. <laughs> Whereas I think sexual intelligence could be a great introduction to sex positivity. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm done. I'm out, Kristen. I'm out. <laughs> All right. Before we go, though, we do have to do movie trivia. What did we ask last week, Rafer? Well, last week we were reviewing slash trashing Cameron Crowe's Aloha, oh, so um, which was set in Hawaii. and With an um, all-Asian cast. With, Not! with an all-Asian no. cast, including Emma Stone, <laughs> uh, Bradley Cooper, who is, from, who is from China. I don't know if you knew that. Um, <laughs> uh, Cameron Crowe, of course, actually apologized. Uh, uh, I, think it was, I think it was an actual apology he issued to people who had criticized him for casting Emma Stone as a Hawaiian, uh, you know, and probably a, a, an apology that needed to be spoken. Um, at any rate, uh, because we'd been talking about Aloha and Hawaii, we decided to go back and find another movie that was set in Hawaii. We found this movie and we played this clip. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. All of our dogs are adoptable. Except that one! <gasps> what is that thing? A dog, I think. But it was dead this morning. It was dead this morning? Well, we thought it was dead. It was hit by a truck. I like him. Come here, boy. Wouldn't you like a different dog? We have better dogs, dear. Not better than him. He can talk. Say hello. We asked you to name that movie, and lo and behold, we got the right answer. Hi, this is Alecky calling from Meridian, Mississippi, and I believe the answer to the movie trivia question is Lilo and Stitch, uh, Disney, set in Hawaii. 
It was one of my favorite movies. I was probably too old for Disney movies when it came out. At least I felt that way because I just graduated uh, high school. But it was one of the first movies where I felt like, oh, look, there's like a little girl who looked like me, and I'd wish it come out when I was a kid. So uh, love the show. Good luck. Excellent. Great job. Love that answer, too, especially because we're talking about how Emma Stone does not look like you, Alec. <laughs> exactly. Like, if you are looking for somebody who also looks like a Native Hawaiian, Lilo and Stitch, even though it's an animated Disney film, is going to do a better job of showing you exactly. what you are, what you look like, what your culture is, than Aloha. But... I would say Stitch is more identifiably Hawaiian than, than <laughs> Emma Stone. so sad because Stitch is an alien. <laughs> An anyway. outer space dog, <laughs> but but yeah. So, um, but yeah, you know, film industry, get it together. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. what yeah. can you say? What can Poor you Cameron Crowe. All right, Kristen. What's this week's trivia? All right. Well, this week, in honor of Love and Mercy, a biopic in which two different actors play Brian Wilson, we were thinking of other movies that are also biopics about musicians, in which more than one actor also plays the lead. Yes. Here is a clip of one of those movies we thought of. Yes. Thank you. Why do you think you were booed at your recent appearance in New England? Well, um, I've... I figured there's a little boo in all of us. Is it true you no longer sing protest songs? Who said that? I didn't say that. I just... uh, I read somewhere that you no longer do the protest thing. Well, it's all I ever do is uh, protest. Mr. Mr. Mayor, do you have a message? Do you? Hmm. A great movie, by the way. Should great, we say who movie? that biopic is depicting? No, we no. shouldn't do that. No, no, no. Too many giveaways. Too many giveaways. Too many giveaways. You gotta know that one. Come okay. on. All right. So. If you know what that movie is, give us a call at 5717movies. Or you can write to us at facebook.com slash moviedatepodcast. There are